I think we're in a place where, to paraphrase Chesterton, it hasn't been tried at all. And that's not to cast blame or aspersion. I think covenant theology is experiencing a, a resurgence. And so I would just encourage brethren of all stripes, whether you have some reserve or whether there's openness, read it in its historical sources, read biblical treatments of it, weigh it against the scripture, and, and come to your own conclusions. But by all means, don't miss out on the opportunity to, to delve more deeply in, into the teaching of scripture. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Guy Waters. Guy is the James M. Barr Jr. Professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary. He's also the author of numerous books and served as a co-editor on a new resource from Crossway entitled Covenant Theology, Biblical, Theological, and Historical Perspectives. Today, Guy and I discuss how to understand the biblical covenants and how they help us to read scripture rightly. He addresses what people often get wrong when it comes to covenant theology, highlights the progressive nature of God's promises in the Bible, and explains where he thinks dispensationalism and new covenant theology miss the mark. Let's get started. Guy, thank you so much for joining us on the Crossway Podcast today. Thank you for having me. So if you had to summarize covenant theology, this this large thing that we're going to talk about today, into just a couple sentences, what would you say? Covenant theology lets us appreciate the unity of the Bible, and not only the unity of the Bible, but within that, the diversity, uh, both of which God has, has built into this book that he's given us and that he's authored. But covenant theology helps us to appreciate what's the heart and center of the biblical message, which is the gospel. And covenant theology helps to unpack those riches and helps us to see the gospel in wonderful ways. Mm. So would you say it's like a theological framework for reading the Bible, interpreting the Bible? It is. And uh, in the first instance, covenant theology helps us to pick up any part of the scripture and see it in relation to the rest of the scripture. And so it gives us a measure of confidence as we pick up different books of the Bible and we try to read them and apply them. Hmm. And it also helps us with the message of the Bible. What is the Bible trying to say? And covenant theology is not to the side of what the Bible is really about, but it helps us to understand that main message more richly. Mm. Are there any organizing principles, first principles to covenant theology that, that you can think of that kind of help to, they're the pillars of kind of how the whole system fits together? Yes. Uh, when we come to the Bible, there are two main covenants. Uh, we see a, in the Garden of Eden, a covenant that God makes with Adam. And the scripture there and elsewhere helps us to see that that covenant was made with Adam and with his ordinary descendants. Mm. Uh, he is a representative uh, for them. Where do we see that? Because as I, my memory of Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, I don't remember that word coming up explicitly anywhere in that, in that passage. That's right. The word covenant isn't used but when we look at that arrangement that God makes with Adam, 
you see a promise, you see a command, you see a curse, you see implied a blessing. Those are the elements of what will later, when they're grouped together, be called a covenant. Mm. And Hosea chapter 6 arguably refers to what God did with Adam in the garden as a covenant. And when the Apostle Paul parallels Adam and Christ, we know that the work of Christ inaugurated the new covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Every time we receive the Lord's Supper, we hear those words. So Jesus, among many other things, is saying, you need to understand my work in terms of this covenant that God has made. Mm. And if Jesus' work is parallel to Adam's work, then we should understand Adam's work covenantally as well. Yeah. So so that's then getting at this covenant in the garden with Adam, uh, and then we have Jesus in the new covenant. Right. What do we make of all those covenants in between that we read about all throughout the Old Testament? Maybe what are those covenants, and then how do those fit in? Good question. So the, the covenant that God makes with Adam in the garden was based on his obedience. And we know that Adam didn't obey, and because he didn't obey, he died, and we have died in him. In Adam, all die. And the good news, of course, is that that's not the end of the story. Mm, Um, God pursues our first parents, and the gospel promise is first announced to them in Genesis 3.15, the seed that God would raise up to crush uh, the serpent. And what we see as we read on through the rest of the scripture is a succession of covenants. And what those are, are administrations in succession of that one gracious covenant that God has made in Jesus Christ Mm. with his people. And from the very beginning, Christ is at the very heart of that promise. I'm going to send my son And this is what he's going to do, deliver my people from sin. And that promise gets revealed more fully and more clearly as we move into the days of Noah, and then Abraham, and then Israel under Moses, and then David, and then this new covenant we start to read about in the prophets until we come to the glorious fulfillment consummation in the new covenant as we encounter it in the New Testament. Mm. So there's this progressive nature to the covenants, ultimately culminating in in Jesus and the New Covenant. Exactly. One illustration that many writers have used, it's uh, like a tree. You you start with uh, an acorn, and it becomes a sapling, and then it becomes a a little tree, and then it becomes a, a great oak. It's the same tree, but it's growing. And that's what we get to witness as we read the Bible from start to finish, is these promises that God administers by way of covenant growing and flowering until they come to their intended fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. Hmm. You mentioned that the covenant with Adam was conditional and that he failed to to live up to his side of the covenant and therefore had to die. Um, Does that imply then that the other covenants um, that are all part of this greater gracious covenant in Christ that followed were unconditional? 
they're not conditional the way that the covenant God made with Adam was conditional. And this is part of the good news that Jesus undertakes the conditions that as sinners we cannot and will not fulfill. So God requires obedience, and as sinners we can't yield perfect obedience to his law. Jesus does that on our behalf. And we owe a debt to God as he is just and we have violated his law. Jesus steps in and pays that penalty at the cross. But that doesn't mean then that we're free to live as we please. Being in covenant with God means that as we receive Christ, that faith is going to respond in a harvest of obedience to God. And that obedience must be there. That's necessary. It's not optional or discretionary. But that obedience doesn't make us right with God. That obedience is itself a provision of this gracious covenant. It's a way for us to see that the, the faith that I claim to have is, is real faith. And it's a way to glorify God who has saved us as we take up the commands of his law. Mm, yeah. And I want to return to that, the connection between this idea of covenants and, and really the gospel is what yes. you're talking about there. Um, but before we get there, uh, w- what is a covenant? Uh, you've kind of hit on some of the elements of covenant that we see in scripture, but I think even that the term itself, the concept itself has a, a pretty rich ancient culture background to it that helps us to understand what's going on when we read about the covenants in the Old Testament. Can you briefly just explain what is a covenant to Mm -hmm. begin with? Yeah. Well, you're absolutely right. Covenants were part of the world, the ancient world uh, that the Israelites inhabited. We don't have covenants today in the same way, but there's still some reminiscences of them. I mean, would like a a legal document where we're Mm -hmm. signing, is it, is it, did it have the kind of legal mm-hmm. implications that we would think of today? Uh, it, it would, yes. So today, for instance, we speak of a marriage covenant. Two people come together, formalizing the relationship publicly, solemnly, with a vow, and they pledge themselves one to the other. And that's, uh, that's a bond that is uh, formed, and it's a, it's a bond that mustn't be broken. Um, I live in a neighborhood that is a covenant community, so we have to sign an agreement that we're we're not going to put furniture on the front lawn or some (laughs) other such thing. Sounds like an HOA. (laughs) Exactly, and uh, if you violate the terms of that covenant, we have a very vigilant um, management association (laughs) that will let you know, and and there are are penalties to be paid. So covenant was very much part of the ancient world, but it's not something that we're unfamiliar with, Mm. even though we don't use that word uh, nearly the way that the ancients did. Yeah. But in the ancient world, uh, covenants were uh, made sometimes between equals, uh, often between those who were not equals, a, a, a powerful lord and a less powerful lord. And what a covenant did is it formalized a relationship between two people, and there were promises, there were conditions or terms. So I promise you this, life and security, 
you owe me this, um, taxes, tribute, what have you, and there will be great blessing if you keep the terms of this covenant, you, you will flourish under uh, this covenanted relationship, but there are also sanctions. If you fail, if you don't keep up your side of the covenant, uh, I'm going to come in and let you know about it. Mm. And that was, as Bible scholars, and we um, have contributors in our volume who talk about this, uh, this was very much part of the world um, in which the um, first readers of the Old Testament inhabited. So when God came to them and he uh, said, we're, we're in relationship, and this covenant is going to formalize and advance this relationship, that wasn't a brand new idea. They had some context for understanding that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you mentioned the covenant with Adam, you mentioned the new covenant with Christ, and you mentioned Noah, covenant with him. Uh, what are the other covenants that we read about in the Bible? The main covenants after the garden, uh, we see, I believe, a covenant that God makes with Adam after the fall, hmm. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 and following. We see a covenant, of course, that God makes with Noah, Genesis 6 and Genesis 9. We see a covenant that God makes with Abraham. Uh, that word is used in Genesis 17, but what God is doing with Abraham in chapter 12, chapter 15, I think we have to understand as part of that one covenant mm, God yeah. made with Abraham. There is, of course, and this is what most people think of when they think of covenant, the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. Yep. And then, of course, there is the covenant that God makes with David. We read about it in 2 Samuel 7. The word is not used there, but it is used in the Psalms to describe that arrangement. Mm. And, of course, that chapter and prophecies connected with it are quoted so often in the New Testament about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have the promised new covenant in Jeremiah. We find it in chapters 30 to 33. And it's referenced in other prophets as well. But that will get picked up in so many words mm. in the New Testament. Mm. Yeah. So covenant theology is often contrasted with dispensationalism. Uh, what might a couple-sentence summary of dispensationalism sound like? Dispensationalism is going to look at the history of redemption and see it in terms of a sequence of dispensations, where, where God will come to people, he will give them a, a trial, a task, and inevitably people will fail, and that will lead to the next dispensation. But they're not connected the way that I've described covenants as being connected. Mm. And covenant theology sees a single set of redemptive promises for one people of God in all of redemptive history. Uh, dispensationalism would say that God has, classically dispensationalism would say God has two peoples. You have Israel, you have the church, and, and there are promises and dispensations that relate to each. Hmm. 
And so that, that would be a very different way of understanding the structure of the Bible and of thinking about God's purposes in history. So one way that I think covenant theologians will often refer to the views of dispensationalists is that um, the church was God's plan B. Do you feel like that's a fair characterization of what a dispensationalist would say? And then I have the, I have the inverse question mm -hmm. uh, as well. Yeah. Well, you have to be so careful about generalizing dispensational theology because there's been so much in the way of development and there's a lot of diversity today. And a lot of developments within dispensationalism, and I say this as a covenant theologian, seem to me to be coming closer to mm. covenant theology. And I'm... With like progressive dispensationalism. It, and exactly, exactly. And so I'm, I'm very happy to see that. And I want to affirm the, the good movement that I'm witnessing there. But in its, its early and classical forms, uh, yes, the church is a, a parenthesis. It is plan B. Um, Israel uh, rejected uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we moved to plan B. And then there still awaits uh, a resumption of God's plan and purpose for Israel. Well, and, and to be fair, I think there are some passages, Paul comes to mind, where he says things that that maybe have that flair to them that, you know, Israel rejected their Messiah and now God has brought in the Gentiles as a way to make them jealous right. that he might return to them. So how would a covenant theologian read that? Why doesn't that mean what a dispensationalist would take that to mm -hmm. mean? Yeah. Well, we would certainly uh, affirm what the Apostle Paul is saying in those passages where we would differ with our dispensational brothers is that you, you can't infer that God has two peoples and two purposes. I think as, as Paul shows, particularly in the epistle to the Romans, what God is doing with Israel and with the Gentiles is part of a single purpose to save a people, one people. And as Paul leads to his crescendo, and in this way all Israel will be saved, there's that beautiful image of the olive tree branches that are broken off and grafted back in. But God's got one tree. Mm. And that tree, in the end, will be populated with a, f a fullness of Israelites and a fullness of, of Gentiles. We're embracing the same Savior, the same set of promises. We're engrafted into the same tree. So as God is doing this, this mysterious thing in redemptive history, it, it's with an eye to those uh, that one set of promises and with an eye to, to that one people. Mm. So on the other side, sometimes dispensationalists might say that a covenant theologian believes that the church just replaces Israel. Does that feel like a, a fair characterization? I, I wouldn't characterize it that way at all. I, I've, I've heard that, that charge made, but I don't think it really fairly captures what covenant theology is trying to say. We're not saying the church replaces Israel. What we're saying is that the church is the people of God in her maturity, as Israel was the people of God under tutelage, a child not of age. And so we're looking at one people, but in two different states or, or phases of the outworking of God's plan. So to say that the church replaces Israel, I think, misses it. 
what we're seeing, rather, is, is the maturation of God's purpose in and for one people. Mm. So now I want to turn to some of the particular doctrinal implications of covenant theology. Um, I think probably one of the big things that comes to mind on discussions of uh, covenant theology and dispensationalism is eschatology, the end times. Um, is covenant theology tied to any particular view of the end times? Now, covenant theology is not wedded to a, a particular or single uh, view of the end times. Now, today many covenant theologians are amillennial, but many have been and are postmillennial, and there are a few historic premillennial folk that are, are floating around. <laughs> um, and uh, it's, it's a wonderful intramural in-house debate. Mm. I'm amillennial myself and would make the case for that, but um, there is a, a certain bounded diversity mm. within covenant theology on, on that specific question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then how about um, baptism? Is there any kind of um, necessary correlation between uh, who gets baptized, how they're baptized, and covenant theology? I think that question illustrates the importance of thinking about God's covenants carefully in Scripture. I would argue, as a covenant theologian, that infant baptism is a, a practice warranted by Scripture in light of its teaching about the Abrahamic covenant and its relationship to the new covenant, one covenant in different administrations. I have Baptist brothers who are discovering the riches of covenant in Scripture, and they've come to different conclusions. And I'm glad that we can sit down around the covenants of the Bible and have this discussion. Mm, yeah, yeah. That, that kind of makes me uh, wonder beyond that, what, are the, what would you say are the main dividing lines within covenant theology? Are there, are there issues that, that divide um, brothers and sisters from each other, not in a, uh, a divisive, unfortunate way, but just in a, hey, these are kind of the main lines of disagreement that we have within this unified camp? Right. Probably the biggest one historically has been how we understand the, the nature and role of the Mosaic Covenant uh, within God's plan and purpose worked out in history. Um, Jonathan Edwards, at some point in his writing, says, look, um, divines, that's an older word for theologians, yeah. are, are not in agreement on this question. And if they weren't in agreement in the mid-18th century, they're not in agreement today. <laughs> and there, there are places in the Scripture where the Mosaic Covenant seems like it's a covenant of works. There are places in Scripture where the Mosaic Covenant seems as part of the covenant of grace. I mean, for my part, I, I would see the Mosaic Covenant as an administration within the covenant of grace, administering gospel promises. But I can understand why folk who take a different view of the Mosaic Covenant come to the conclusions that they do. It's, it's a difficult question. Uh, it's an important question because the Mosaic Covenant lies over so much of the Bible, and your answer to that question, what is the Mosaic Covenant, will affect the way you read and, and apply that part of the Bible. 
But I'm glad that covenant theology gives us a, a framework to have that discussion um, and that we can do it as brothers with uh, common commitments in uh, the fundamental areas that we've been talking about. Yeah. Well, where does new covenant theology fit into this? I think that maybe is a term that, that people have heard um, in recent years. Uh, maybe there are certain key figures, uh, prominent figures who have kind of publicly embraced that. Um, what is New Covenant Theology and how does that fit into this conversation? Right. New Covenant Theology is... Sounds better. It's new. Right. right? <laughs> I think takes its name from the New Covenant. And I will say one, one thing it does well is it is looking at the Scripture in terms of a succession of covenants uh, New Covenant theology has found a home most often within Baptist circles. And I think where it would differ from, say, the covenant theology that you would find within the, the historical Presbyterian tradition, the Westminster Standards, is that it would see the New Covenant promised by Jeremiah and realized in Christ. It would see that as more unlike than like the covenants that have gone before it at some crucial points, mm. such as who are the, the members uh, or participants in the covenant community, which would bring in the baptism question. Mm -hmm. What is the, the standard? We all agree God has given us a revealed standard for us to live. What is that standard? Where are we to find it? Are we to go to the Mosaic Law in any way to find that standard as New Covenant Christians, or are we to look elsewhere? Mm. Do you think it's a fair description to just kind of say New Covenant theology is covenant theology for Baptists? Is that kind of, uh, you mentioned that's like uh, one of the primary homes of it. Is that kind of where this is originating from? I suspect so. And again, New Covenant theology, uh, they, they're looking at the the prophecy in Jeremiah of the New Covenant, and their reading of those promises, they will all know me from the greatest to the least, uh, and the promises surrounding it, there's, there's a level of plausibility to it. Now, I don't, in the end, agree with that exegesis, um, but I do appreciate they're trying to wrestle with what is the new covenant in light of what God has told us that the new covenant is? Mm, yeah, yeah, that's helpful. So you've talked a lot about the strengths of covenant theology and the ways it helps us read the Bible and understand the Bible uh, and understand salvation itself and the gospel. What would you say are some of the, maybe the pitfalls that someone who, who comes to the conviction that covenant theology is, is true what are some of the, the dangers, uh, the ditches that they could maybe fall into that they'd want to be aware of? Right. Well, I think one thing that's important to stress, when we say that the, the structure of biblical re revelation is covenantal, that, that God has revealed himself and particularly his, his plan to redeem a people in Christ, we, we rightly say, Covenant theology captures that. But that does not mean that there aren't other strands of biblical teaching, the kingdom of God, for instance. Mm. So this is not a zero-sum affair, so that if you're going to emphasize covenant, 
you're de-emphasizing everything else. I mean, covenant integrates, of course, with all of the other themes and strands of biblical revelation. But I don't think it's one among many. Uh, for the reasons that I've mentioned, I, I think it sits atop uh, the, these, some of these other themes because it simply runs the course from start to finish, and it, it touches on those matters that sit so centrally mm -hmm. to the gospel. But sometimes people kind of try to run everything through the grid of covenant, and it kind of breaks down, you would say? Uh, it, it has happened. Mm -hmm. um, people in, with a certain zeal for covenant um, lose, I think, the, the proportion uh, that... that Covenant theologians have always maintained as, as they take up the scripture. So being a covenant theologian doesn't mean you're going to find covenant under every rock and tree. Mm. Uh, being a covenant theologian doesn't mean every third word of my Bible teaching or sermon has to be the word covenant. Uh, that's not what covenant theology is about. Mm. Maybe as a last question... Um, what would you say, what would be like a uh, succinct um, exhortation or argument that you would offer to maybe the Baptist listening right now who, um, whether they're Reformed Baptist or um, more traditionally dispensational and they're thinking about these things, what's like a, a short kind of exhortation or encouragement you would give them uh, to kind of maybe reconsider things or consider covenant theology for the first time? Yeah. Well, I think what I would encourage them is what I would encourage anyone. I don't think we're in a place in the church today where covenant theology has been tried and found wanting. I think we're in a place where, to paraphrase Chesterton, it hasn't been tried at all. And that's not to cast blame or aspersion. I think covenant theology is experiencing a, a resurgence. And so I would just encourage brethren of all stripes, whether you have some reserve or whether there's openness, read it in its historical sources, read biblical treatments of it, weigh it against the scripture, and, and come to your own conclusions. But, but by all means, don't miss out on the opportunity to, to delve more deeply hmm. in, into the teaching of scripture. Well, Guy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today and, and give us, yeah, just this helpful orientation to covenant theology as a whole, and uh, we appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That was Guy Waters on Covenant Theology. For more, be sure to check out the book he co-edited from Crossway, Covenant Theology, Biblical, Theological, and Historical Perspectives, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, would you leave us a review? That helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.